Let me ask you this. How many of you remember this commercial? Check out this commercial real quick. Sometimes I dream that he is me. Got to see that's how I dream to be. about the only way we could be like Mike, right? <laughs> Anybody remember this commercial? Anybody remember this campaign, Gatorade's Be Like Mike campaign? How many of you, be honest, wanted to be like Mike? Raise your hand. Anybody? I, I know I did. I know I did. This ad campaign made Gatorade millions because Gatorade knew people wanted to be like Mike. So they thought... If Mike drank Gatorade, so would everyone else. And they were right, weren't they? Shortly after this commercial aired, there was hardly a basketball court in America that was not littered with Gatorade bottles and hardly a concession stand in a basketball arena or in a football stadium that didn't sell it. I, I remember always hounding my dad, wanting him to stop before a basketball game or a football game or a baseball game to pick me up a bottle of Gatorade. And I remember going to a lot of basketball games with a Gatorade like Mike, hoping to play like Mike, though I never did. But it was a brilliant advertising campaign. Gatorade really tapped in to this idea that people are unsatisfied with who they are and, and where they are in life and that they would love to be someone else, someone better. And many other companies have done this as well. And we buy into these things. And the reason why is because we're not satisfied with who we are and where we are, and we, we truly believe that if we can move from where we are, if we can become more like this and less like that, more like this person, less like that person, then we will truly be happy. And though it's not, get, get this now, hear me say this, it's not altogether a bad experience, a bad thing to, to experience this kind of dissatisfaction when it comes to where we are in our lives, the problem with many of us is we often look to the wrong things and pattern our lives after the wrong people and we remain unsatisfied. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 5. We're continuing our series through Ephesians entitled Walking Worthy and we're going to learn this week and next week that it is not altogether wrong to feel in this uh, feel this way we are we are not altogether wrong to feel this sense of dissatisfaction in life 
And this is especially true of us believers. It's not a bad thing for us to feel as if we're not yet where we need to be spiritually. It's right for us to want to be better than we are. Now, though I agree, Scripture teaches, as we've learned in this book, that we have already been blessed with everything we need in a spiritual sense in Christ. And though we are new creatures, though our old self has been crucified with Christ, and we will one day be like Him, Scripture is also clear that we at present are not yet there, are we? We are not yet where we need to be spiritually, which is why we need to continue to press on and grow in godliness. Paul said this about himself, did he not? He said in Philippians, he basically said, I'm not yet where I need to be in a spiritual sense, so I press on. And he calls for us to do the same thing. 1 Timothy 4, 7. He calls for us to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Paul realized that though we have everything we need in Christ and though we will one day be made complete in Him, we are not yet there, folks. Therefore, we are to press on and pursue godliness. We're not to wait for godliness. We're to pursue it. Scripture is clear on that, which is what the latter half of this book, the book of Ephesians, is all about. I mean, think about this. If we were already where we need to be spiritually, there would be no need for Paul to write the second half of this book. Am I right? I mean, he could have just focused on the first half, that, which tells us about what God has done for us and who we are in Christ. And he could, all, he could have left off the latter half, chapters 4 through 6, that focus on how we are to live. But he doesn't do that, does he? And the reason why, again, is because Paul knows we're not yet where we need to be In a spiritual sense. Though we will one day be like Christ, we're not yet there. And again, it's good for us to realize this as believers so that we'll move forward in our faith and pursue godliness. And one of the ways we do this scripturally is by looking to and patterning our lives after good godly examples from the scriptures. Paul calls for us to do this on numerous occasions. Remember, he told the Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. He told the Philippians in Philippians 3.17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So time and time again, Paul calls for the believers of his day to grow in godliness through looking to and patterning their lives after good godly examples. And he does that for us again here in Ephesians chapter 5, except he doesn't call for the believers of his day and us, his greater Christian audience, just to follow his example or to follow the example of other faithful followers of Christ. But notice he points them and us to the perfect example, God himself. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God. 
as beloved children. In this verse of Scripture, Paul gives us a very clear yet challenging word on how we are to walk worthy and live the Christian life. He says, be imitators of God. Folks, this phrase here, be imitators of God, is the bottom line on the Christian life. This is the central principle to walking worthy. If someone were to come up to you and ask you what the Christian life is all about and how the Christian life is to be lived, you could share with them Ephesians 5 verse 1. You could tell them that we as believers are called to be imitators of God. Now, the word imitators comes from the Greek word mimetai. It's where we get our English word mimic. And it simply means to do what someone else does. Used here, Paul is saying we're to imitate God. We're to be like Him. We're to do what God does. And this is not the only time we're told this in the Scriptures, is it? Remember Jesus called his followers to be imitators of God. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, he says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Peter also made this point in 1 Peter 1.15 when he said, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Again, folks, this is the whole on the Christian life right here. If you've been fumbling around, trying to get a handle on what God wants from you, if you've been searching the scriptures over for answers, look no further than Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. This is what God wants from you. He wants you to be like Him, and He wants you to live like Him. He wants you to be an imitator of Him. And by the way, this has always been the way, hasn't it? It is. It has been. Listen to Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45. God tells his people Israel, You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. God tells his people from the jump, from the start, You are my people, and I am your God, and my desire for you is for you to be like me, and for you to live like I live. And that's what God wants from us. He wants us to be imitators of him. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You've been thinking this the whole time. I've been making this point. You've been thinking, easier said than done, right? You're right. In fact, you can't do it on your own. Remember what Jesus said during his Sermon on the Mount? In that sermon, he was explaining to his audience how to live the Christian life. And he essentially says that to live a godly life, you must first realize you can't do it on your own. What does it start with? It starts with you being broken. It starts with you being poor in spirit. It starts with you mourning over your weakness and your sinfulness so that you in turn hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's a great paradox here in the scriptures. On the one hand, we're called to be like God. But on the other hand, we know we cannot be like God by our own strength. 
Therefore, believers, we need outside help. Well, Scripture is clear where that outside help comes from. It comes from God. God provides the help needed, the help we need to be like Him. We'll learn next week that God has sent us His Holy Spirit, and it is His Holy Spirit who gives us the ability to walk worthy for God by being imitators of Him. Remember, Paul made this point in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. He says that it is the Father who strengthens us with power through His Spirit in our inner being. That's how it works. But again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's next week, all right? Come back next week to hear the second half. We're going to be in verses 1 through 14 this morning. And in this passage, in this passage for next week as well, in verses 15 through 21, Paul explains what this looks like to be an imitator of God. He shows us in this passage how we are to walk worthy for God by imitating Him. First, he says we do it by walking in love. Look at verse 2. Paul says, and walk in love. Now, what does Paul mean when he says walk in love? What does this look like? Does it look like this here? Look at this next slide. Is this what walking in love looks like? Check out Sally here. She's probably thinking about Linus, right? Wasn't that who she was all about, Linus? Yeah. Is this what Paul's talking about here? Walking around with floating hearts over our head, looking like we just got shot with Cupid's arrow? Is this what it looks like to walk in love? Is this what Paul means? Notice what he tells us in the latter half of verse 2. Look at it with me. He says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now get this. This is very important. Biblical love. Agape love is not defined as this uncontrollable emotion, but rather as an act of self-sacrifice. It's the kind of love that says, I will love you regardless. I will love you, no strings attached. It's the kind of love that says, I will love you whether you deserve it or not. It's not the kind of love that is conditioned on a response. The world's definition of love, folks, is completely counter to that. It's conditional and deserved and merited. It's not the kind of love that says, I will love you regardless. It's the kind of love that says, I will love you if. Remember the old John Michael Montgomery song? I love the way you love me. That's the way we love each other. If you love me, I'll love you. He says, walk worthy for God in agape. He says that we as believers are to show forth agape love, the kind of love that is selfless and sacrificial and unconditional and undeserved. This is the kind of love, believers, that Christ showed us. Notice again, Paul says, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The love that Paul tells us that we're to have for one another is the kind of love that Christ showed for us when he gave himself up for us. When he offered his life up as as an offering and a sacrifice to God in our place. Can you imagine what our relationships would look like if we loved in this way? 
if we were if we were driven by this conviction believers that we are to love as christ has loved us i've had people tell me in the past graham you just don't understand i just don't love my husband or my wife anymore i've lost that loving feeling I just don't feel it anymore. And they share that with me, thinking that makes divorce okay. Not according to this verse here. According to this verse, love is not so much an emotion as it is a choice. It's a commitment. It's to be selfless. It's a love of the will. It's not the kind of love that is deserved and merited. It's sacrificial, undeserved, unmerited. It's not something we're to do when we feel like it. It's not conditioned on the acts of another. What if Christ dealt with us in this way? Think about that for a minute. What if after we messed up a few times, Christ said, you know what? I've had it with them. I no longer love them. They're no longer saved. That'd be terrible, wouldn't it? You know and I know, Christ doesn't love us in this way. His love toward us is unconditional, undeserved, and Paul calls for us to love as he has loved us. Believers, how are you doing in this area of your life? Look back up at the end of chapter 4 and verse 32. Are you loving in this way? Are you being kind to one another? And not just to those who are kind to you. Remember, Christ washed the feet of one who would deny him and another who had betrayed him. And we're called to love as he loved. Are you tenderhearted and compassionate and loving toward the unlovable? Remember, Jesus ministered to prostitutes and thieves and tax collectors and various kinds and types of sinners, and he calls for us believers to do likewise. How about this? Are you a forgiving person, especially to those who don't deserve it? Remember, Jesus asked forgiveness of his persecutors at Calvary. And after asking Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9, why are you persecuting me, Saul? He later said of Saul, he said, he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Believers, are you forgiving in this way? Are you imitating God by loving others the way God has loved you? Paul says this is to be characteristic of true believers. He says true believers are imitators of God and they do so by walking in love. Notice there's a second characteristic as well. We imitate God also by walking in purity. Look at verse 3. Paul says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Now, why does Paul go here? You know, could have mentioned any kind of, uh, of sin here, a number of sins, but, but why does he address sexual immorality here? Well, I believe it has to do with what he's just said in verse 2. Think about it for a minute. If the love that we're called to have toward others is selfless and sacrificial kind of love, you better believe that the enemy is going to take that kind of love, the kind of love that Christ shows us, the kind of love that God calls for us to have for one another. He's going to take that and he is going to pervert it. 
Is that not what we have here? Sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness, they are emotionally charged, self-satisfying, self-seeking, self-centered and unloving acts of evil. The word translated sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. It's where we get our word pornography from. It refers to sexual sin. It's used over 40 times in the New Testament. Listen, if something is mentioned that much, that means it's a problem, right? And it was, and it is, and it will be as long as we live in this fallen, sin-stained world in which we live. And the word means a lack of self-control sexually. It, it's, it's sexual behavior that's gone haywire. Sexual behavior that is out of control. Paul says, get this, he says here, there is no place for this in the Christian life. No place for it. He says, it must not even be named among you. You must not associate with this in any way whatsoever. Now, believers, we're fighting an uphill battle on this, aren't we? Because we live in a sexually charged and perverse culture where men and women talk about this kind of activity like it's nothing over dinner. This must not be named among you, Paul says. Notice also he uses the word impurity. Now, a lot is lost in that translation of that word. That sounds a lot better than what the word actually means. The Greek word is the word akatharsia, and it refers to something that is vile and rotten and filthy. It's used 11 times in the New Testament, often in connection with sexual sin. It speaks of the vile and rotten stench of sexual sin. Your stomach turning a little bit? I hope so. It's supposed to when you read this. Paul says there should be none of that. And not only should you not partake in it, you should not dwell upon it or long for it. He says, no covetousness among you. And I believe covetousness is used here in reference to sexual sin because of where it is placed in the text. Also, remember, when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, he said, you shall not covet what? Or whom? Your neighbor's wife, remember? Husbands are not to desire any other woman other than their wife. And the same is true for you wives. Some think, as long as it's up here, I'm fine. Right? As long as I don't act upon my desires and it stays up here, everything's fine. No. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 27 and 28? He says, you have heard it said that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Why? Because Jesus knew that all sin begins in the heart. So if you have lust in your heart, you got to deal with it. you got to get it out of there. You need to repent of it. And you need to fill yourself up with the things of God or a fall could be very, very likely. Happens all the time. These things are not even to be named among us. Paul says in verse 4, look here, we're not to even talk or joke about it. Very clearly. He says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, 
nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Paul is telling us believers here how we are to live and talk. Thanksgiving is the way we are to be speaking. Instead of foolish talk and filthy talk and crude joking, we're to be thankful for the things God has done for us and for His guidance and His protection from these evils. We ought to be thankful for the husbands and wives that God has given us instead of wanting someone we don't have. We're to be thankful for the way in which God has loved us and for how He's loved us, and we're not to pervert it. So sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness, and filthy and foolish talk and crude joking, they're not to be characteristic of God's people. They're not to be named among us. In fact, look at what Paul says in verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Believers, Paul is giving us a warning here. We have warning passages all throughout the Bible, and they're meant to cause us to stop and to examine our lives to see if we're truly trusting in Christ, if we truly belong to Him. I've said it before, and I'll say it again because God says it again and makes it crystal clear in His Word. Followers of Christ, by definition, follow Christ. They bear fruit. They live differently. They're set apart. They live righteous and holy lives. Now, do they mess up? Yes. Do at times they get caught up in sexually immoral behavior? Unfortunately, yes. But look at verse 7. They do not become partners with them. This is not to be characteristic of us believers. When we mess up, we're to be messed up about messing up. That's the Spirit of God at work. We are not for any reason to continue in habitual, unrepentant, and sexually moral sin, Paul says. Listen, you show me an unrepentant, unremorseful, sexual deviant who's given over to the lust of the flesh, and I'll show you an unbeliever. Not my words, Paul's words. I don't write the messages, I just deliver the mail. It's true. That's exactly what Paul says. You got an issue with that, you got to take it up with him. Folks, though we are not saved by our works, our works show that we are saved. Scripture's clear on this. And if someone is a slave to this kind of sin, you better not be guilty of doing what Paul says in verse 6. You better not be deceiving people with empty words. Saying, oh, don't worry about it, you know. You walked an aisle when you're eight. You prayed a prayer in BBS, so you're okay. You can habitually watch pornography and cheat on your husband or wife. Don't worry about it. You're forgiven. Paul says you better not do that. Would that be what Paul said in that situation, you think? Now, you know what he would say? I know this according to the scripture. He says it over and over again. You better examine your life because that's not characteristic of a child of God. Remember the Corinthians were struggling? He said, I'm going to talk to you like unbelievers. You know, some of them were and, you know, he had to deal with them in that way because they're not 
acting like a child of God, and they may not be. These things are the reason why God's wrath is coming. So if you're a child of God, you're not to be given over to these things. There's a third way we're to be imitators of God, and it's by walking as light. So walking in love, walking in purity, walking as light. Look at verses 8 and 9. Paul says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Paul, like he did in Ephesians 4, is calling for his Christian audience to to not walk as they once did. He says, at one time, you were darkness. Not you were in darkness. He says, you were darkness. This is who you were. But not anymore, he says, so walk as children of light. Now, what does it mean to walk as children of light? What is meant by light here? Light is a symbol in Scripture, and it normally symbolizes two things. It refers to truth, and it refers to holiness. And there are tons of references I can give for you. You have them in your spiritual growth guide. You can read them later. Psalm 119, 105, Proverbs 6, 23, 1 John 1, 5 through 10. And, and in these passages, you will see light used in both of these ways. And notice that both are mentioned here in Ephesians 5. Paul says, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So to walk in the light is to walk in goodness, to walk in righteousness, to walk in holiness and in truth. Notice what else. Paul says children of light are to be doing. He says that we are to, verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And he says we are to, verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead, folks, we are to expose them. Folks, God has called you out of the world to go back into the world to be light to the world. We are to walk as light and life in this dark and dead world in which we live. And we are to expose that which is darkness. And the way you expose it is by word and deed. That's it. By sharing the truth about who God is and about man, sin, and salvation. And you do it by representing Christ in the world. You do it by living up to your identity as a follower of Christ. You do it by imitating God and by being faithful to his message. Paul says it's shameful to do otherwise. Look at verse 12. It says, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. He says the works of those who are in darkness are not to be talked about, let alone done by God's people. Paul says our job, he says our job is not to make light of the darkness. It's not to partake in the darkness. We're not to sweep the darkness under the rug, but we are to expose it. Because if we don't, the darkness won't come to light. Paul says in verse 13, first part of verse 14, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible for anything that becomes visible is light. Folks, according to this passage here, if we don't expose the darkness again, it will not come to light. We must shine God's light on this dark and dead world by the things that we say and by the things that we do so that people will be led out of the darkness and in to God's marvelous light. 
That's our role as believers. I want to close this morning the way Paul closes out this passage. Look at the end of verse 14. Paul says, Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. After making these various distinctions between those who walk in the light and those who are in darkness, Paul gives an invitation to those in the latter group. It seems as if he knows some will read this letter or have this letter read to them who are still in darkness. So he gives an invitation here to those people. And notice he's quoting from the Old Testament. Whenever it says, therefore it says, you know the writer is about to quote something from the Old Testament. This is what Paul does here. And many commentators believe this is taken from Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, that says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Isaiah is writing about the Messiah to come, the Messiah who is going to come, who is going to lead people out of darkness and into the light. And Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, that Christ is that Messiah. Christ is the light. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. And so Paul uses this passage here to call for the unbelievers of his day to wake up, to rise up from the dead, to look to Christ, to trust in Him, to follow Him, and walk in the light. Christ spoke a similar word, didn't He? In John chapter 8, verse 12, remember what He said? He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Maybe you're here this morning and the Spirit of God has been doing a work in your heart and life. And he's made it clear to you that you're in darkness. As you look at the points of this sermon, you can honestly say you're not walking in love and in purity and as light. Your life is not characterized by Christ's love and you're not controlled by the Spirit of God, but you're controlled by the evil passions of your flesh and you're in darkness. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're here, you can honestly say that when you look at your life, you look more like an enemy of God rather than an imitator of Him. If this is you, that's good. If you're seeing yourself in this way, you're seeing yourself clearly for the first time. And I have a good word for you, good news for you. Listen, Christ has come to make a way for you. He has come to bring light and life into this dark and dead world. And he is able to bring light and life into your dark and dead life if you'll turn your life over to him. Christ has come. He has accomplished salvation through his life and death and burial and resurrection. And he's come to call us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. And if you would turn from your sin today, if you would give your life up and over to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you would trust in him alone for your salvation and make him Lord, commit your life to him, Jesus says, if you do that, you will not walk in darkness but you will have the light of life. Never made that decision. I pray you would before you leave here today. Let's pray.